Well, today, if you have your Bibles, let's uh, go back to uh, Proverbs chapter 4. And uh, today we'll be moving along in our next set of verses out of chapter 4. Uh, as you should be well aware of, we just finished uh, uh, what I would consider a great three-week study on Bible doctrine and how important it is. And uh, it's something that we base everything that we do on, the importance of getting the right teaching, you know, as you begin to learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. And now, you know, you have a better understanding and a better uh, perspective of what uh, the key is to a biblical New Testament church. It's built on a model, a model and a pattern uh, based on the church at Antioch that is definitely based on strong Bible doctrine. I mentioned last week, you know, how that the Bible has certain things that make it all go together and how that the fundamental way if you were going to learn the Bible is simply to start with those fundamentals. And obviously I did not have time to give you all of that last week because that was not the point. I was just trying to show you in the process. But I've had so many of you come up that, uh, you know, that all of the younger new Christians that we've just gotten the last six or seven months, you know, we've just got a bunch of you, that uh, really want to have a desire to learn the Bible. So uh, I, t- I told the people Thursday night that uh, in next month, in March, um, I'm going to take uh, probably two months to do it, and I'll take Thursday nights, and uh, I'll bring you through that fundamental structure of how the Bible goes together. We'll start with going back to Proverbs, and I mentioned this last week, the nine pillars, that the, or seven pillars, excuse me, that the Bible is built on. Those are the key fundamental issues that you have to get down for you to begin to see how your Bible cohesively goes together. We'll start with that, and I'll go through each one of them, and I'll define them for you. I'll show you how each one connects to the next and how important they are uh, in their overall concept to the Word of God. Then, what we'll do is the second thing I talked about is I'll start taking, once we lay the foundation of the seven, then I'll begin to bring you through the eleven dispensations and show you how that they actually work in and out of those seven. And, and what it'll do for you is it'll give you, <clears throat> it'll give you a, a great understanding of structure. It'll give you the key components of, of putting your Bible together. You know, and um, this will be a chance to, for many of you, uh, to accelerate your spiritual growth. Now, I've said it many, many times that there's no fast track to learning the Bible. But there are some things that you can do, uh, as anything in life, to work smarter and not harder, as the saying goes. And when it comes to the Bible, there are some things that if you focus on learning first, you know, it'll give you the ability to move a little faster understand a little better, um, and that's going to be our goal. I've told you many, many times, the problem with most people when it comes to the Bible, it's not that they don't want to read it. Most of God's people have a desire to read the Bible, but through all the years of ministry, I've found two fundamental issues that they have. First of all, when they get into the Bible, no matter where, they, they, they they don't know what to look for. They have the best intentions. See, you've got to turn it right upside down first. <laughs> they, they have the best intentions, but they don't know what to look for. And then when they do find something, this is the second thing, when they do find something, they didn't know what to do with it. Now, my whole life has been to solve that problem for you. And my whole life has been to help you grasp it as quickly as you can. So I think it'll be an excellent a chance to, uh, for all of you to grow and get to a point where everybody that wants to be can 
pretty much be on the same spiritual level with the Bible. And so I'm looking forward to that. It'll give you the key components and give you the complete structural picture of it. And then, I say this all the time, the rest of the next year and really the rest of our lives, once you get that foundation down, it's just building upon it and showing you how to put the other pieces together. And pretty much in time, you'll, you'll figure it out and we'll help you with that. But today, uh, we're going to move on in our, next, uh, in our next couple of verses here. And uh, we want to continue to lay out the theme of the book of Proverbs as we've seen it so far. Uh, And he's writing to us as God's sons, and he's telling us the concept of being able to get God's wisdom and God's understanding. Now, let's read Proverbs chapter 4, and let's pick it up and read 5, 6, and 7. Here's what it says. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Now, Father, help us today to, <coughs> to glean from this and to grow from it. And these are good people here today. The majority of these people are here for one reason. That's because they want to know you better. They could have been doing anything else today, and they decided to get out of bed and come to church and, and because they want to know deep down inside. They want to have a better relationship. And I understand they're all on different levels, and they all <coughs> have different goals in their lives. But, Lord, the Word of God meets all those goals and all those needs. So help us today. Help us to across the board to help these good people to learn and to be challenged and to want to grow more to be like you. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now look at verse 5 here. It says, get wisdom and get understanding. Now we know now after the last three weeks that the foundation of God's wisdom and understanding is our getting Bible doctrine. We know that now. The Bible doctrine, we know that the word doctrine means to teach. Specific teachings in the Bible. Not just some helter skelter teaching that you want to put out there about something. But the Bible uh, has right doctrine. It has right teachings. And the Bible, we've talked about it before, that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. And the first thing it's profitable for is doctrine. Doctrine shows you what's right. It gives you the right perspective on how God looks at things from His Word. And then we also now know that uh, doctrine divides. It divides truth from error. And it shows you what is right, and it will also show you what is wrong. We now understand that. It'll divide the truth from any error that uh, may try to creep in. And I gave you last week, really the last couple of weeks, I gave you some great examples of that that we face today uh, in modern Christianity. Some great examples today uh, that why people are so, uh, you know, have such a hard time struggling with the Bible and, and struggling in their life. Good doctrine will show us what's right by contrasting truth against what's wrong. And then you know what to take, and then you'll wrap your life around it, and you apply your life to it. Mark Twain said one time, and I'm not a big fan of Mark Twain. He certainly certainly was not a saved person. He didn't have much to say good about Christianity. But he had some good things that were general truths. And he said one time, it's not the things that we don't know that give us problems, but rather the things that we are sure of that are not true (laughs) that give us problems. Boy, that is a lot of truth in that. And that's why, for you and for me as Christians, the absolute importance of having a final authority in your life. A final authority that when you read the Bible, you don't have to try to interpret for yourself what it means. And you hear that a lot today. How many times I hear people say, well, you know, the Bible, you can read it and you can interpret it any way you want. Well, you can. 
But the Bible says that the Bible is of no private interpretation. The Bible interprets itself. And people don't spend that much time with it to try to figure that out. But at the end of the day, the Bible will tell you what it means. I've given you over and over and over and over again, and will continue to do so. I'll make note of the definitive passages in the Bible about certain things. Those definitive passages are passages that define something. And it shows you a truth in the Bible that will stay consistent all the way through it. Having the ability in our lives, not just to know the Bible, but having the ability to know how to use the Bible. And it happens by letting the Bible use you and do what God wants to do in your life. Then he says in the last part of verse 5 and 6, we're going to kind of lay this out and then we're going to come back and talk about some great principles here. That once you get it, once you get to the point in your life that you attain wisdom and understanding, then the next step is to have the ability to keep it. And boy, that's, uh, that's what we're going to focus on today. Uh, he says in verse 5 and 6, he says, Forget it not, neither, neither decline from the words of my mouth. He says, Forsake her not, wisdom and understanding. Now, I don't know what you know about the Bible, but in the Bible there's a model for everything. And when I teach the Bible, I'm usually teaching off one of these models, uh, or I'll, I'll show you the model and we'll go to it, and I'll have you actually see where I'm getting from the Bible what I'm trying to express and try to lay out for you. And we've been talking about your spiritual growth. We've been talking about you growing through a process of getting God's wisdom and understanding. You get to the point where you really have a good relationship with the Word of God and God, and there's a process that you have to go through. And there's a great example of that in the Bible that lays out the exact principles of getting uh, and the process for you and for me of getting God's wisdom and God's understanding and then not just getting it, but I'm going to show you how to keep it today. I I told you last week that uh, there are certain things that I look for in a person. There are certain things that when you meet people, if you've been in the Bible long enough, that there's traits that people have. And uh, there are certain things that, uh, that you look for in people. I've always been, when it came to the Bible, I've always been uh, someone who gives everybody the chance, no matter uh, where they come from or what they do. You always have to do that. But there's times that when you, God will bring in certain people. And it happens here a lot because we're kind of an odd group here. And, and God brings us a lot of people who, who really uh, maybe have had a desire for many years to learn the Bible that just never got in the right place. And then God finally orchestrates the events to get them someplace that they get what they need. And when you start to see people like that, you, you begin to learn over the years what to look for in people. You begin to look at their certain traits uh, that, uh, that you see. And, and, and when you see that, you, you, uh, you want to develop it. You want to cultivate it. Uh, you want to, uh, there's been times that uh, uh, God has actually, uh, somebody I've met with or somebody that's come in and we've sat down and talked and you've come over to the house and I can read in you that you really are the real deal. And it's almost like, and I don't believe that God speaks in anybody's ear and tells them, I, I get all of that, but it's almost like God says, look, you give that girl, you give that person that guy, whatever they need, because I've got something for them, and I'm going to use you to get it to them because I have plans for them. I've seen so many of people over the years come that way. Now, the great principle here talked about in Proverbs chapter 4 
is found all the way back in the book of 1 Samuel. So I want you to turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 3 uh, in particular. And uh, I want to read to you one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And uh, I, I learned this and broke this thing down probably in my, for my own life, uh, probably about 35 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, anyhow. And uh, it, I've never forgotten it. And I have favorite stories in the Bible, you know, that deal with different subjects in the Bible. And this is one of my favorite about understanding the process. I have seen this process enacted in so many people's lives over the years that it's unbelievable. And it's always been a a marvel to me. Nothing excites me more than seeing God begin to put his hand in your life. Nothing is more exciting to me than that. I get almost giddy about it. And it's a thing where I just just get bubbled up inside when I actually see somebody that wants to do what's right in a world where most people don't want to do what's right. And then you see God's hand in their life and their response to it, and then you see this process. So I want to show you this process today. Now, I want to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, just a little bit of reading this morning. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. It says, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. Uh, There was no open vision. And it came to pass that at, at, at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am I, for thou hast called me, calledest me. And he said, I called not, lie down again. And he went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again Samuel, and Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli. And he said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and called as the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house when I began, and I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever, for the iniquity which he knoweth because of his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. And Samuel lay down until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, Here am I. And he says, What is the thing that the Lord hath said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to thee, and more also, if thou hide anything from me of all the things that he said unto thee. And Samuel told him every whit. And nothing, and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. 
And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now, that's a great story. And it's a story that is a great example of how this thing actually happened. You're going to find almost every story in the Bible, even though it's an actual event that's taking place. And even though not everything exactly matches up in any story, you're going to find that within stories like that is a great flowing principle about something. And in this particular case, it's one of the greatest examples that I know of the process when God begins to deal in your life and put his hand in your life to call you to do something for him. It's one of the greatest stories I've ever found in the Bible. And I, I'm saying it's the actual thing that God showed me uh, so, many, so many years ago. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it, it's a great thing. And the first thing I want to say here is I want to give you a little background on Samuel. Now, Samuel is last of the judges. He's the last of the judges. He's not in the book of Judges, but he is the last judge that Israel has. And he's also uh, a great prophet that Israel has. He's really incredible. And uh, the thing behind him and his success, when you read the story, we don't have time to get into all that, but you get into chapter 1 and 2, is his mother. His mother is a great story. She's an example for every mother in this room who wants her child to serve God. And you could, you could never find another greater place in the Bible where every mom had to camp out if you've got little children and follow what she did to make sure her kids got to where God wanted them to be. Incredible. She's an incredible lady. And uh, it's it just, you get into chapter 1 and chapter 2 and you see Hannah's prayer uh, to God and, and, and some of the great um, things that she did uh, that are great models for She simply wants her son to serve God. And uh, I, I'm telling you, one of the greatest phrases is found about how that, uh, uh, for parents, of how that she, she takes her son when he gets of age, and she takes him down and she delivers him to Eli. And Eli is the priest, and that's where all the tabernacle work is done, and that's where she wants her son to be raised up because she knows that God is going to use him. And she gave one of the greatest phrases in the Bible, how that she takes her child and she lends him to the Lord. Incredible. You know what? As a mom and a dad, you either lend your children to the Lord or you'll rent them out to the devil. Amen. It'll go one or the other. They'll either be in church serving God or they'll be out drinking beer and running with the crowd. One or the other. You either lend them to the Lord or you rent them to the devil. And it's just that simple. And she's a great example of that. And boy, I'll tell you what, it's, it's quite incredible. But I got to tell you this. This is one of the strangest passages in the Bible. And I want to draw your attention to three verses here before we really get going here. But uh, this, is a, this is a strange passage. Now, I know in the Old Testament how God worked. God gave what he gave through three ways in the Old Testament. He did it through the prophets. He did it through dreams or visions. Doesn't do that today. Or there was another little device called a unum and a thunum. We don't have time to get into that today, but that's another way that God uh, gave answers and, and spoke to the people and nation of Israel. Here, he doesn't do any of that. This is one of the places in the Bible that is so unique. And I believe it's unique because of what it represents, even though it's an Old Testament story, the New Testament example that God wants to get across. Here, 
There's no prophet speaking. There's no dreams or visions. And there's no unum of the thunum. Here, it says exactly. In verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord was precious in those days, and then specifically tells you there was no open vision. Verse 7 says that Samuel didn't know the Lord yet, nor was the word of the Lord not yet revealed to him. Now, that doesn't mean that Samuel didn't know about God. He was raised in a family that did. It simply means that in his process of growth, just like so many of you, you know the Lord as your own personal Savior. You know the Lord, you know all about him. You come to church, you come to Thursday night Bible study, but the word of the Lord has not been revealed to you. What does that mean? It means that yet in your young Christian life like Samuel, you do not understand yet how to discern the voice of God when he's telling you something. The word of God has not been opened up to you to that degree. You may know some things about the Bible, but when it comes to God speaking to you, and I see this with young Christians all the time, once they get into church and they begin to grow and God begins to work with them, they have a tough time uh, understanding what God is saying. And it can get confusing at some point for them. Of course, we know that God is not the author of confusion. And uh, we understand that there's a process here. But this is a picture of something in the church age. This is a picture of something, even though it happened in the Old Testament, and it's a true story, it's a picture of something that happened in the church age because, just like today, there's no open vision today. The only thing that you're going to find out that God speaks to you is through the Word of God. And the only way you're going to find out anything that God's got to say to you is if the Word of the Lord is precious to you. This is something strange here, but it's my favorite, one of my favorite stories. One of my favorite stories. Now, this is the model or the process that each one of you will have to go through to get where God gives you his wisdom and his understanding. In this chapter, there are six circumstances, we'll call them, six different things that Samuel grows through. Let me say something about that. You don't become a strong Christian just because you go through adversity. Now, I know adversity will make a strong Christian, but we get the idea that we become strong in God because we go through some tough times. That's not necessarily true. You don't become a strong Christian by going through tough times. You become a strong Christian by growing through tough times. There's a difference. I know lots of God's people, (laughs) all their life has been a train wreck right around the next corner. They go from one bad problem to the other. They go to one bad mess from another. They get into one bad relationship to another. They don't use the Bible principles, therefore they, they just go from one bad relationship to another one, oftentimes the same one, when it's a dead end street. And they never get to the place in their life where they grow, though they go through it, But that's not the key. The key is growing through it. And that's what Samuel did. Samuel grows through these circumstances in his life. And going through this process, growing through it, will end up with you getting the wisdom of God and the understanding of God. Now, let me say something about that. The wisdom of God will be defined in the Bible as you knowing the Bible. When you get the wisdom of God, you know the Bible. But the understanding of God is different from the wisdom of God. 
where the wisdom of God may be knowing the Bible, the understanding of God is knowing how to use the Bible. And again, I've met lots of people who know the Bible, but they don't know how to use the Bible. I know people all my life that could, quit, get, could quote 100 scripture verses, but their own life fell, up, fell apart every time they had to go through some circumstance in life. And of course, that's the difference. And then, of course, it isn't just enough that you get the wisdom of God and the understanding of God. The Proverbs chapter 4 then says that you've got to keep it. And this has nothing to do with your salvation. I'm not talking about you losing your salvation. I'm talking about you getting to the place in your life. I could tell you a hundred stories today of people who in my lifetime came to church, got the wisdom of God, got into the Bible, and then forsook it and lost it. They simply traded it for something else. A better deal came along. I mean, you know, the real story of any ministry... And I, I, I tell you all the time that there is no such thing as a perfect church. There's just not. You look for that and say, well, I'm not going to church. We'll find a perfect church. You're never going to go to church. But people don't understand how to judge the worth of a church. The real mark of a church is, not, is nothing more than that you, the story of any church or any ministry are the people who get the wisdom of God, who get the understanding of God, and then firmly keep it. That's the mark right there. But all the time in my life, and I'm sure you'll see it in yours, that there will people that, that, uh, that get it, they have it, and then you know what? They're gone. No more around. They lost it. But keeping it is the right stuff. I, I love the movie. There's, there's two movies that I, no matter how many times I've seen them, I'll, if I see it on the TV, I watch it. I don't care. There's two absolute movies that I will watch anytime, anywhere, and I probably could confess to you I've seen it a thousand times. But there's something about those movies that I just am drawn to. The first one is Apollo 13. I'll watch that anytime, anyplace, anywhere, because I lived through that. That was one of the most uh, momentous times where, and most people don't know how close we came to not getting those three guys back. It was, it was a very, very tenacious time. It was, a, it was really, it was really solid. The other movie that I love, and I'll, I'll drop whatever I'm doing and watch it, is The Right Stuff. I love The Right Stuff. A movie about the early space program and how you had all these test pilots, but they went through and out of everybody. And boy, it really, it really compares Chuck Yeager, who was my hero in life, to the astronauts and how he never became an astronaut but he was, in his own right, first man to break the sound barrier, he was an incredible guy. But the movie The Right Stuff simply says out of everybody that was in the military, only a certain group of people had the right stuff. And that's what it takes in Christianity. That's what it takes. And knowing what the right stuff is and what to look for is the key. Now, you take Samuel here. And this great story, this great model unfolding that we're going to look at here, he's got the right stuff. And when you see it, you also see the process that he went through as God developed him. Now, from the time I've been a little kid, I've collected things. When I was 15 years old, I had... I had the greatest comic book collection of Sergeant Rock comic book that you ever saw in your life. 500 of them. 
I couldn't wait till Sergeant Rock, and there was a whole bunch of them that came out, but they were all about World War II. I had over 500. If I had those today, they're probably worth $1,000 a piece. They're collector's items. I don't even know what happened to them. But I had them in a big box, and they were all were sorted out, and all my life I've collected stuff. I just, I mean, I just, I don't know, I just, I, 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 I do. And uh, I, I love today, I love collecting military jackets. I mean, you got to wear a different job. I just love the idea of, you know, I mean, I get them from all over the world. They're cheap, and nobody really wants them, and I think they're the neatest thing in the world. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. That means, if you, who, you probably don't, many of you young ones don't know what a baby boomer is. That's somebody that, that uh, was born right after World War II. There was a baby boom after World War II. You can figure it out. Everybody came home that was at the war, and, uh, you know... The baby boom went off from there, you know. But I grew up in the shadow of World War II. Well, you guys play video games and some of the goofy stuff that you do. And I shouldn't say it's goofy. It's good for you. But in my day, we didn't have those things. We played Army. The great movies on TV were combat. Rick Morrow, gallant men. I grew up in the era where the great war movies were being actually being made. Saw many of them in the theaters. And I, you know, I, I, I've, I've collected World War II stuff for, for, for probably 50 years. I remember when I was 18 years old, I had a, an Ed, Aunt Nettie and Uncle Clyde. They lived in Frostburg, Maryland. Now, it doesn't get any more Duck Dynasty than that, let me tell you. <laughs> Aunt Nettie and Uncle Clyde. I love going to Aunt Nettie and Uncle Clyde. They lived, for me, they lived in Maryland. For me, Maryland was, back then was was the wilderness. It was the wild, wild west. And I mean, I just loved going back there. I mean, I was just a little guy and, and uh, you know, I, I had my BB gun and I would go out and boy, there wasn't a frog left in that pond when I was done, when I left. I just loved going back to Maryland. And i never forget one night and I was, I was really into military army stuff, you know. And uh, my dad had five brothers and all of them, my dad wasn't, uh, but my, all my other, his brothers were in the military. And we're sitting down around there one night, and Aunt Nettie, we're out, I don't even know how it come up, and Aunt Nettie talked about the fact that we were talking about Marcellus, that's one of my dad's brothers, and he was in Germany. And we were talking about, you know, and he's talking about all the stuff that, that Marcellus had brought back, you know, Lugers and all the stuff he brought back. And Nettie said, and I, and I said, boy, that stuff sounds really neat. And Nettie said, yeah, up in the barn garage someplace, there's an old German helmet that he brought. <laughs> As soon as it was light that morning. I mean, it must have been five through. I don't think I slept at all that night. I asked Nettie, I said, if I find it, can I have it? Clyde said, well, yeah, you can have it. He said, I don't even know where it's at. You'll probably never find so much junk. And there was a lot of junk in there. I found it. It was a single decal Luftwaffe Air Force helmet, my first German helmet. Oh, I looked at that. It was in really good shape. I found it under a bunch of old, I had to clean out that whole garage, man, but I found it. And I found, and I took that thing home with me, and that was, a, oh, that was the beginning of it for me. I was absolutely the beginning. And I mean, I've always collected stuff. And when I, you know, and when you collect stuff, you want it to be the real deal. Now, anybody that collects stuff, Gary collects cars. Some of you collect other things out there, you know, but you want it to be real. And anybody who collects anything knows that there's a million fakes out there. If it's worth anything, somebody's going to fake it. They fake baseball cards. Shoot, they were faking Super Bowl tickets. They're not even old. You couldn't tell them from the real deal. And, you know, now when I collect this stuff, I got to tell you, 
It's out of, it's out of respect and honor for, for the men who, and, and women who paid the price for my freedom. I mean, I, I, I love history and military history and seeing it and understanding it and knowing. I mean, I love to get into it. I love to get the groupings. Uh, that uh, uh, that you, that you have uh, that people have, you know, and see them, and just oh, I mean the history of everything that goes on. We're talking about Matt's da- dad. It was a P fifty one pilot, and Matt got a hold of his uniform and his leather jacket and all of his hat. Incredible stuff, all painted up, man. The stuff that they actually wore, and I just love stuff like that. A while back, I got one of the saddest groupings that I ever have gotten in my life. And I, I really don't know what to do with it. I picked it up and, you know, and I got it. But it was a B-17 pilot. His name was uh, Herbert Brandt. He lived in Independence. And uh, he married a girl in Independence, and he, he went off the war. And they had a little baby girl. And uh, in, in the whole grouping of things was, there's got to be 500 letters. All the letters from him back and forth while he was in flight school in the States. And then when he was, he was over in France and uh, flying out of England and dropping bombs into Germany and those places over there. Uh, he was in a B-17. Little Butch II was his name. He was killed December 12, 1945, just three months before the war was over. And I have the last letter that he wrote his wife before he got killed. And then I've got probably 200 letters that go on for the next year that she keeps writing him because she didn't know what happened to him. He was killed. And the way he was killed, the plane was blew up over Germany. They didn't know what happened to him. Five of the guys later they found out, bailed out, became prisoners, and five guys were killed. And for, for a year and a half, she's writing these letters. They are the most heart-wrenching letters, and every one of them are stamped when they sent them back missing in action. And you can read in those letters the emotion. One letter she's saying, I know you're okay, and I'm expecting a letter any day. And then the next letter, you can see, I'm afraid something... It's the most heart-wrenching thing. 1946, when they got, right after the war, when they got repatriated and all the prisoners came back, they found out what happened to him. Five guys went out the back, and five guys went out the nose, and he was the last two guys. Him and another guy were going to go out the nose. And the buddy, they were going out, and the plane exploded, and Herbert got killed, and his buddy got blown free and uh, opened up his chute, but Herbert was killed. But nobody would know about that because they were in a prison or war camp. After they got him back and they debriefed him, they found out, and then I've got the independence Papers. She must have collected eight or nine of them that actually shows his picture and tells the story. I got a couple of his hats, four or five of his hats. I got his ribbon bar. I got all the stuff that they sent back. And, and I never know what happened to her. She died. It came out of an estate sale. I never know what happened to, happened to the daughter. It's one of the most tragic things. There'll be times that when I get feeling sorry for myself or I get feeling goofy about something, you know, that I'll just sit down and I'll read some of them letters. And it makes your problems seem like they're nothing. Can you imagine the agony for a year of going through something like that, of not knowing what happened to your husband? It's unbelievable. I have tremendous respect for things like that. I I, I look at myself in a lot of ways as a preserver of history to keep their memory alive. And that's what the collector show is all about that, you know, I invite you to every year. And, uh, but... When when it comes to, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but when it comes to God in the ministry... God's a collector. You ever stop and think about it? God collects people. And where I'll meet some guys and I collect World War II one stuff or World War II stuff, God collects Old Testament people, New Testament people. 
He makes up his collection out of the Jew, the Gentile, and the body of Christ. Bible talks about in a great house, there's vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. Ever been at somebody's house that, that is a great athlete, and then the case is there, they got all kinds of collection of the trophies they've done? Well, up in heaven someplace, God's got a, got a trophy case, and in it are the, is the collection of all the people that have accepted Christ as their own personal Savior. Bible says you've got a new name written down in glory. I'd say it's probably written up there in that collection. He collects people. It's an incredible concept when you think about it. And I'll tell you something else. A good collector, a serious one, a good collector will use what we call in the trade as pickers. You see, you can't be, every, I got like four or five guys that pick for me. Uh, you, ever, you know, if you know what the, the 63rd Street uh, old drive-in theater was, they have a flea market there every Sunday. I got two pickers that just, they'll call me. You want this? You want that? I found this. I found that. Nah, I don't need that. Yeah, that, that. But I've got four or five guys. I've got guys across the country, one in California. That they'll go to all these places. They'll see stuff. They'll call me up and they'll say, hey, this is a great deal. I found this. Are you interested in it? And sometimes I'll say yes and sometimes I'll say no. But a good collector will have some pickers. They, they, what they do is they pick stuff up for you that they see that where you're not. In fact, that's how I got that Herbert Brandt grouping. Uh, one of my old pickers found it at the 60, uh, uh, 63rd Street uh, um, uh, garage, uh, over there at the, uh, at the trading place where they all have their garage sale stuff. And, you know, to me, that's always been a simple example of the ministry in the simplest form. Because I'm a picker for God. I pick people. I wait, you know, my pickers, they'll walk up and down the aisles. They'll walk up and down the, the, the flea markets. They'll walk up and down this. They'll walk up and down that. They'll go through everything that they do and, and walk up and down it. They'll find it, all the stuff that they try to find. Uh, you know what? And, I, and they'll find stuff. They'll call me on the phone and say, hey, I found out of all this trash, I found something really good. Stop and think about it. All my life, I wade through the trash of everybody's life, the carnage, the problems, the broken marriages, the broken lives. And I look for the same thing that my picker looks for me, something that's real. Sometimes you find it, sometimes you don't. Up in Watertown, Massachusetts, a couple, about 10, 12, 15 years ago, at an old secondhand store, a guy walked in. And there in the back dusty shelf was what they, about that big and on, was a red case with a big Nazi swastika on it. And he, he saw immediately what it was. He opened it up, and it was a Knight's Cross document, the highest order you could get for a German general who was the head of the Battle of Balls, Manfred Montroffel. The guy asked him what he wanted. He says, oh, a piece of junk. He says, uh, 20 bucks. Hmm. It sold later for $250,000. In that old back of that old dusty shore with all the other worthless stuff, there was one thing that was worth $250,000. And through the trash of life and all the problems in life, you find some treasures. Oh, I'm telling you, God collects. <laughs> He's a collector of people. He really is. Vessels of honor, the Bible calls them. But a really good picker will only pick the good stuff up. He's had a relationship with the guy that he picks for, the collector, and he's been taught and trained by him to be able to tell the fake from the real deal. And through his association over the years, you know, he's been taught all the things that he needs to look for. And his job is to find out of all the trash what is real. You know, when you start coming through the Bible, you've got two kinds of people. You've got people who are fake and you've got people who are real. 
You know, when you go out in life and you walk through life where you work, you know this is true. You got people who are real deal and you got people who are fake and phony. And you know, in Christianity, it's the exact same way. You have people who are the real deal and you have people that are phony. Now, Samuel, he was the real deal, see? And in 1 Samuel 3, you have a clear process of God unfolding some events in Samuel's life. And as they unfold, you see how Samuel puts all the right things in his life and uses all those things to follow God's leading, even when he's not sure what God is doing. And old Samuel turned out to be one of the best prophets that Israel ever had. In all my many, many, many years of the ministry, some 40 plus years, I've seen people fall into the pattern that God sets up for them to, to learn about him, and I've seen them do it, and I've seen them follow him, and I've seen them get the Bible and fall in love with the Bible and really start to get some things in their life, and uh, you know what you got? You got the real deal. And one of my most amazing things I could ever witness in my life, and it's the most exciting thing in the world, is when I see the hand of God begin to work in your life. I'll see it long before you will. But then that's the job, you see. I I see it begin to work in your life when you think you're at odds with something and you're struggling with something. And you look at it as this. I look at it as God beginning that process in your life. You'll have issues with your family or relationship or this or that, and you'll struggle with that. And you won't see it for what it really is because you're not, the Word of God hasn't been revealed to you yet, you see. You don't know the Lord in that, in that former fashion. Now, I want to walk you through these six things and come back through here. I want you to see it because I see this in so many of your lives. God wants it to be true in all of your lives. But, well, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Now, the first thing I want you to see here is that there's a process in Samuel's life that developed him, and then God calls him through that process. And uh, the first thing I want you to see is that the period of time, this is right after the judges, and Samuel's ministering with Eli in the midst of total corruption, just like today. You've already been told that the priesthood in Israel is in a total mess And it's an exact time period like you and I are living today that Christianity, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, is an absolute joke. But Samuel, while his whole life, when you begin to lay it out, was nothing more than in the midst of this dark time in Israel's life where not many people wanted to do what's right, that the priesthood was corrupt, why Eli's own sons are worthless. In the midst of all of this time, there's a shining light, and that shining light was Samuel. I don't care how dark it gets, and I don't care how bleak it gets. God will take the pick of the litter, so to speak, and God will make you a vessel of honor and put you in a pristine place in his collection if the process enacts in your life. And it's your choice. You get to choose. That's the great thing about it. You get to choose. Samuel's whole life was nothing more than an orchestration of God to get him where he needed to be to get what God wanted him to have. I I don't know if all of you understand that principle today. Do you realize that it's no accident that you're here today? Somebody just didn't invite you and you decided to show up today. 
You just didn't hang out here because of this or because of that. Did you ever stop and ask yourself with all the things that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, why you? Why aren't you in some worthless church someplace where, why did God give you the Bible? Why did not God find you this morning in some neo-evangelical mess out there? Why did God choose you to reveal the true word of God to and put it in your lap and put it in your hand? You think it's just by happen chance that you just happened to be at the right? I'm going to tell you, just as you see in Samuel's life, God was orchestrating every event in his life to get him where God wanted him to be so he could get what God had for him. God's orchestrating every event in your life. God will put you, it may take some of you longer than others to get where God wants you to go. That never matters. It matters is when you finally got there, were you on the job? God orchestrated the events. He saw down inside you. He saw down inside you things that you wanted. Missy was telling me the story that in the church as she was, four or five times she wanted to get discipled. Four or five times she asked to be discipled. The last time they said, finally over, you know what the guy did? He came up and knocked on the door and said, here, here's the lesson. Read them through and see if you understand it. You say, well, why would God, why would God let that happen like that? Because there's always a process. In God's timing, God orchestrated the event, but he saw in her somebody that would, hey, <coughs> She saw somebody that the first time that somebody, it didn't work out, could have got her nose bent at a joint and just went and didn't did her own thing. But she wanted it. She wouldn't stop. She wouldn't rest. That's what God sees in people. He wants to see in people that well, they want the word of God. So sometimes he'll put you into a stupid place just to let you see if it's really real. And then he'll put some obstacles in your life to see how easily you'll quit. How when you don't quit and you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and you stay with it, God says, you know what? She's got the right stuff. Amen. And then got her where she needed to be. He's done that. If you can't see it this morning, he's done that in almost every one of your lives. Some of you have responded. Most of you have. Most of you, you recognize that. But there will always be people who never look at it that way. The awesome, the responsibility that we have in our lives based on understanding that great truth. I mean, God, with all that he does and all that your Bible says he is, bottom line is, he cared enough to orchestrate your life because he saw us don't mean you. God saved you for a purpose. He wants to enact the same process in your life that he did in young Samuel's life. Not just so you'll learn the book. Not just so you'll learn how to use the book. But also that the rest of your life, once you get it, you'll never forsake it. You'll never give it up. You'll never trade it. There'll be no relationship that you'll trade it for. There'll be no job you trade it for. You'll never lose the wisdom in God and the understanding of God that he has for you. I see it all the time. At one point, the Bible, God, church was the most important thing to somebody. They loved it. Couldn't live without it. Serving God was the most important thing in their life. Not anymore. Something happened. Something transpired. Somebody forgot it. Somebody declined from the words of his mouth. Somebody forsook the truth of God and lost God's 
perspective in their life. And I am not talking about any way, shape, and form of salvation. Now, let me show you the second thing. Samuel gets called by God as he ministers for God, but he's young and he can't yet discern the voice of God calling him. Verse 2, look at it. And it came to pass at the time when Eli was laid down in his place that his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am I, for thou callest me. And he said, I called not. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again Samuel, and Samuel arose and went to Eli, and he said, Here am I, for thou dost call me. And he answered, I called not, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. Now verse 3 says, The lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord. Now, I don't know what you know about the Bible from Exodus chapter 25, 31, Leviticus chapter 24, 2. That should never happen. That lamp was to burn continually forever, never to go out. That lamp represents in the tabernacle the light of God through the word of God. It illuminates the inside tabernacle for the priest to do his work, just like the word of God illuminates for you and I to do the work of God. But the lamp's out. It's gone. Darkness now. That's a picture of the time we live in. No more light from God. No more word of God. No more doctrine. But here's the real problem. You see, Samuel here is a picture of a young Christian who has a tremendous desire to serve God. And now he's in the right place with the right guy, but he can't understand when God calls him. Verse 7 again says, The word of the Lord was not yet revealed unto him, and he did not yet know the Lord. We have already explained that. That's a picture of so many of God's people when they're young Christians. He's confused. He can't discern the voice of God from the voice of Eli. Two times God called him and he ran to Eli saying, what do you want? And in the process of getting where God wants you to be, sometimes it can get confusing. And as I've said, God is not the author of confusion. Eli simply says, go back and go to sleep. I didn't call you. See, Eli knows a few things. Eli is far from being perfect, but Eli knows the process of God and he knows how God does some things. He says, go back and go to sleep. In other words, just keep on doing, Samuel, what you're already doing. Because the ministry and learning to do the ministry and learning the right way of ministry, that's a process of growth and getting to the place where you can discern the calling of God in your life through the wisdom of God, knowing the book, the understanding of God, knowing how to use the book. And that will lead to the discernment and the perception and you keeping it the rest of your life. Now look at the third thing, verse 8. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go and lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood and called it as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. Now God calls Samuel two times here. And both times when he runs to Eli, Eli says, Go back and lay down. Go back to sleep. 
See, Eli is the man of God. He knows God. He knows how he works. Eli doesn't go off the deep end and give him some spiritual recipe to do. He doesn't give him some pragmatic spiritual application to process in his life. He says, basically, by going back and going back to sleep, just wait on God. Continue to do what you're doing and wait on God and God will reveal himself to you. Then God called Samuel the third time. Now this time it's different, isn't it? Bible says, now Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Why is this third time different? The first two times he just told him to go back and lay down. Why did he not tell him the third time? Because Eli knows how the God works. He obviously knows the third time to charm, as the little phrase goes. Eli's perception is based on a biblical principle, a pattern. Number three in the Bible is the number of spiritual completion. Seven may be spiritual perfection, but three in the Bible is spiritual completion. Remember last week I told you if you wanted, my goal was to get everybody, uh, maybe it was the week before, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, three things shall I come. Give, give attention to what? Reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. That'll make you complete as a Christian. You get those three things working down in your life, you're good to go. You want to talk about Christ? The proper way is three parts to his name. The Lord Jesus Christ. All three of them mean something differently. We talk about studying the Bible. We got to study in the doctrinal application, historical application, inspirational application. For it to be complete, you got to have all three. God. God is omnipresent, omniscient, and, om- and all-knowing. You talk about the Gospels. The Gospel of the New Testament is the Gospel, the Acts, and the Epistles. You talk about the Old Testament. It's the Law, the Writings, and the Prophets. Everything breaks down into threes. You and me are the body, soul, and spirit. God is the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. You look at time. It's past, present, and future. Nothing is complete without the third part. And when old Eli sees the third time God calls him because he's got perception, he knows now God's in it. Oh, let's see what he did. I bet he sent him right off the Bible college, didn't he? I bet he sent him right off the seminary. No, he didn't. And when he, he, he knows that God is in the thing and God has called the boy, he didn't send him off the Bible college. He didn't ship him off the seminary. He simply says, okay, son, God's in this now. Go back to sleep. You see, Eli knows the only true process for God developing you is the ministry. You getting involved and making the investment of your life in the ministry. And it takes time. God had great plans for Samuel. Verse 11 says, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. And I want to tell you something. God's got great plans for you. Problem is, you don't have great plans for God. Now, boy, these are some great parallels. Quite incredible. You see, God's system of ministering in the Old Testament was service in the tabernacle. And God grew Samuel up through that. And God's system of ministry and maturing us in the New Testament is that process of spiritual growth, of going through and ministering through your local church and your service in it through ministry. And the first thing, you've got to have the right place. You've got to be in the right church. You've got to have a church that teaches the Bible. You've got to have a church that believes the Bible. You've got to have a church that gives you the opportunity to grow. That's what Samuel had. You know, in any church, 
you'll see a real contrast between the people who are fully invested in ministry of their church and the people who are not. And it doesn't matter where you go. It's the ministry that matures us. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, that great passage that talks about the time we ought to be teachers, and somebody has to, again, teach us the first fundamentals of the Bible. It says that strong meat, that Bible doctrine, strong meat, the doctrine of the Word of God, belongs to them that by reason of use, somebody who uses it, have exercised their senses to discern. There's your discernment. It comes from the ministry and the church where God has put you under the man of God that God has provided for you and that's where you stay and that's where you grow. And God will do a great thing in your life. And there'll be a time in your life when God will take you and do whatever he wants to do with you just like it was with Samuel. Now the fourth thing. Samuel had recognized the importance of the man of God that he had put into his life. It's an ongoing process. Timothy had Paul. My father in the Lord was Mel Sabaka. He had Peter S. Ruckman. I had Mel. And unfortunately, you got me. Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I'm followers of Christ. Now, he not only learns the ministry from him, but Samuel is smart enough to know to rely on the old man's experience of walking with God. He gets his advice from, his, from him on how to discern what God is doing in his life when he doesn't understand it yet. Now, for this example, I can't think of a better example that I could give you than my own personal example of my father, Lord Mel Sabaka. My father died when I was 19 years old. My mom got remarried shortly after that time, moved out, I was on my own. But God put a man in my life God saw my need, and obviously for what it was, I have no idea, but he saw something in me that he gave me a man. And that man took me under his wing, and I, 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 I'm a dumb in a lot of things in life. There's a lot of things that I am stupid on, there's a lot of things that I'll never figure out. But I thank God every day of my life that God gave me the ability to understand and to realize that the man that God gave me was man. I preached his funeral with a bunch of other guys a while back, and I used a verse out of the Bible. And I simply said this, the Bible says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. I preached a sermon on there was a man sent from God whose name was Mel. And God put him in my life. And I recognized that. I understood it. I, I realized that I knew nothing. And he was a lot farther down the road than I was. And, 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 and he was never easy on me. He's probably harder on me than anybody else. I mean, he never cut me any slack in any way, shape, or form. I never got upset about it. I never got mad about it because I knew what God was doing in my life. And I knew that if I was going to have to endure the rigors of the ministry and all that crap you got to put up with, somebody was going to have to build some steel in my backbone. And boy, he was the guy to do it. He told me later on one day, you know why I was harder on you years later? He said, I was harder on you, Bob, than anybody else because I saw more in you than I saw in somebody else. And he said, I never cut you any slack, not because I didn't love you, because I did love you, and you, I, I wanted you to be the best that God could make you to be. I never argued with what he said. Never second-guessed what he said. I knew that I was stupid and knew nothing, and I knew that he, God had put him in my life, and he knew everything that I needed to know. 
And I knew the reason to learn it. I had learned this passage. The reason I, I, I knew that he was there is because he had what I needed. And I could spend my life arguing with him and going my own way and say, well, you don't know what he's talking about. Or I could recognize that God put him in my life for that very purpose of meeting my need. Boy, he did. He did. You know, learning the ministry is a lot like learning how to fly. When you want to fly, you've got to go to ground school. You learn the basics, the fundamentals of flight, aerodynamics. You'll get a seasoned teacher that'll teach you all the things on the ground. Then after you pass that, you go to flight school. Then you get a seasoned instructor who knows all the aspects of flying. You'll spend 200 hours in the cockpit with him. He'll put you through all the aspects of the things you learned in ground school. He'll add you things to that and build upon it. He'll teach you how to take off. He'll teach you how to land. You'll do endless turns, endless ups and downs, upside down. He'll reach over sometime and turn the engine off just to see what you'll do before the plane stalls. He'll throw everything he knows how to do to throw at you to make you a pilot. And he'll put it in your life, and he'll put it in your life, and he'll make you land again and land again. And you're thinking to yourself, I've done this 40 times. Why do I got to do it again? Because if you really want to be the best at what you got to do, then you really do everything somebody who already knows what you need to do tells you to do. And one of those days, after a grinding four hours in the airplane, he lands down there, and he gets out, and he gets out there and you walk around the plane and he, he looks it over and he checks it out and he throws you the keys and he says, okay, time for you to solo. You climb in that plane all by yourself. You know what you wish at that point? You wish you would have had a few more landing practices. You know what you wish at that point in your life? You wish you'd have practiced takeoff a few more times. Because now what was so mundane to you and you were so bored have to do it over and over again. Now when you look over in that left seat and there's nobody there and you're behind the controls and you're down the end and you're revving her up and you're going to go down there, it all comes down to what you did with it. You see, I can give you ground school. I can take you through discipleship one and discipleship two. I can teach you all the scenarios in the Bible like we do on Thursday night and like we're doing right now this morning. I can even take some of you, a lot of you like we do in the people ministry, and I can throw every kitchen sink I know at you. I can give you the hardest scenarios and just, and just break your back by throwing things out there and just giving you stuff and throwing you out there of stuff that, that you... I, I can do all of that. None of that will take the place of the day you got to step out on your own and you got to fly. you got to become that. And you will make it or you'll break it based on what you do with everything that God provided for you, your attitude about it. And when God looks down and sees your attitude about Thursday night, Sunday morning, I mean, he looks at how literally you blow off coming to church on Sunday morning or Thursday night Bible study because this is there or this is that. And I'm not saying things doesn't happen. We had one guy one time, I guess he didn't think I was stupid. His mom died six times. <laughs> God looks down there and says, she's got the right stuff. He's got the right stuff. That kid won't quit. Well, that kid get pounded on and pounded on, and that kid, he just won't quit. They, they slam the door in his face and say, you, he, they ask for this. He wants to learn God. They keep shutting the door down, and I keep having that door slammed because I just want to see if what they're made of. And you know what? 
that kid's got the right stuff. I'm going to get them someplace that they're going to get every desire of their heart when it comes to that Bible. That's what he does. Those are the things I see. That's my job. Discernment comes from God exercising your senses. The fifth thing. The advice that Eli gives him is simple. Okay, Sam, God's called you. I get it. God has his hand on your life. I understand. And God's going to use you mightily. I see that. Now go back to sleep. He's saying, Samuel, I see God's got his hand in you. And I know now we're moving up the ladder here. But the information and the advice is the same. Just keep doing what God has called you to do right now. Because it's what you're doing right now. Whatever it is, restart this afternoon, the mission tonight, discipling somebody, working with this person, working with that, doing with it. Whatever you're doing right now on whatever level it is, is where God is going to take and God is going to begin that process in your life. It's just that simple. You don't have to wait till you get someplace where you figure it all out. God wants you to start right now. And just do right now what you can do because it's that process of you ministering here in this tabernacle that God will use to grow you up. Staying faithful to what God is doing with you right now. Look at verse 19 and 20 and 21. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he didn't let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord, here it comes, revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now, verse 19 is the key to you retaining the wisdom of God and the understanding of God, not losing it. This is the whole concept. Verses 1 through 18 of, of, of chapter uh, uh, 4 uh, shows you the process to get it, wisdom and understanding. But verse 19 shows you the process that you keep it. Verse 19, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. Here it comes, and let none of his words fall to the ground. There it is. I watch some of you hang on to everything that's taught around the Word of God here. I look at some of your Bibles when you don't see me looking, and I, I see that most of you never let any words fall to the ground. You hang on to everything God gives you. Letting nothing of God's word fall to the ground, don't miss a thing that he says to you. The contrast between some of God's people who soak it up every time they can and the other ones who just take what's convenient or take nothing at all. But the absolute importance of developing an ear to hear everything that God said. Bible says in Matthew eleven fifteen, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. He says in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 to the churches, Let he that hath ears to hear, the Spirit saith unto the churches. The key is keeping it, never letting the word fall around. That'll be the first mistake you make. You stop taking everything down that God says and listen to everything that God tells you, you're halfway out that door. You know why? Because when you stop listening to God, then you're going to start listening to somebody else. It's just that simple. Amen. It's just that simple. I've had people come in here, you know, and they want to grow. Or any, All my life, they want to grow. They want to do this. They, they do really well. They do really good. They do really well. 
They get growing, they get going, they do really well, and they start to get up the ladder and start to do things. And you know what? And then they'll quit listening to what God says and want to do their own thing, and somebody else will talk them into something, and you know what? Gone they are. It's simple. You quit listening to God, and you start letting His words fall to the ground, and you're going to listen to somebody else. It's just a matter of that tract. The absolute importance of hearing the Word of God. Now the last thing, sixth thing. Note, it all goes back to the Word of God and its doctrine to you that you take of it. Verse 21, And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the Word of the Lord. This is an an period in time in the Old Testament unlike any other time. No visions, no prophets, no unimunathunum, just the Word of God being revealed just like it is today. Shiloh means peace giver. The place where the ark and the tabernacle were kept till David brings it in a little later on in 2 Samuel. It stands for the place in our lives where God meets us and reveals himself to us to tell us and call us to the ministry to grow to the plan and put it all together in our lives. And every child of God will meet God in this format and either accept it or reject it. Everybody. Everybody will. Now Samuel, and this is why I love it. Samuel reminds me of so many of you. And in chapter 3, you see the process of getting God's wisdom and understanding. And also Proverbs chapter 4 says the process uh, to never lose it. In the wisdom of God, know the book, understanding of God, know how to use the book, and then keeping what God gives you. Yet one last thing, and I, I want to leave you with this. Why Samuel? Now, I talked about <clears throat> how God looks down and sees some things in us. A good picker, when he's picking things for the collector, will learn to look for the right things. And Samuel's got the right things. Go back to chapter 2, verse 35 of 1 Samuel, and I want to I show you the five things that God saw in his life. And it's the five things that I see in so many of you. Five areas that God looks for in us. And five things that I've learned as God's picker to look for in people. Now he says in verse 35 of chapter 2, And I will raise up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. Five things here. This is what God looks for when he looks down deep inside you. This is what he looks for when he sees when you won't quit, when you won't get discouraged. And many times, as I've told you, he'll put you in churches, he'll put you in scenarios, and he'll dangle that carrot out there because he wants to see if you got the right stuff. First thing he says, I will raise me up a faithful priest. Faithful in what you're doing for God right now. Matthew 25, 21 is a great principle. It says if you're faithful in a little thing, God will make you ruler over many things. You got to start being faithful in the little things in your life. Right now, whatever it is you're doing. If it's wrapping hot dogs, if it's doing this, if it's sorting clothes, whatever you're ever allowed to wherever God has you. If it's discipling somebody or being discipled. 
If it's committing to learn the Bible in some kind of process. Faithfulness in the little things that leads to you being the master over the big things. A person that God can trust with the word of God in ministry. That never ceases to amaze me. How people all the time, all my life, they've sat down with me and said, you know what my problem is? I just can't trust God. You know what? That's, that's a stupid thing to say. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even act, I wouldn't even betray myself as so as such an imbecile to say that. Issue is never, can you trust God? You know what the real issue is? God can't trust us. Amen. That's Amen. the problem. Amen. You can trust him. The problem is he can't trust us. That's the issue. Because we're not faithful. The second thing, I will raise me up a man that will know God's heart. A faithful priest that will know God's heart. The heartbeat of God. Finding in your life in time what God really cares about and making it what you really care about. And this is what you get from Thursday night and Sunday morning and your discipleship. All the things that you learn that God loves and then you make those things the things that you love. But of course you know that that kind of requires you to put some things out of your life that you should love. Amen. See? Right stuff. Right stuff. The third thing, I will raise me up, a faithful priest that will know God's mind. An absolute final authority. Not just learning what God cares about, but learning what God thinks about every situation in life and then using the Bible in that format to make it what you think about it and how, how you use it to solve problems. The fourth thing, I will raise me up a priest, a faithful priest who will let God build him a sure house. Wow. Now that'll be your temple, your own body first. Then your house, your family, a sure house. You got to love it, man. Your house, how is it today? How is your family today? How is your sure house today? Or is it an unsure house? Say, your house, your family, a sure house. My house is sure. Your house is sure to serve God that he may, that he, that, that, uh, that uh, forever he may and can say what he does say about God making your house sure. How many people can say that in Christianity today? If there's anything that's wrecked and ruined, not in the world, in Christians, it's the homes. It's moms and dads who lose their kids. It's moms and dads who can't control their kids. It's moms and dads who their kids are all over the planet. And moms and dads who don't take the steps to deal with it. Sure house. I love that phrase, a sure house. We use it in the world. That's a sure thing. The word of God will make sure you have a sure house. Sure in the fact that it's going to serve God for the generations to come. Fifth thing. I will raise me up a faithful priest who will walk before God forever. Never going back to the world. Oh, we'll struggle. We'll have some battles. But ultimately, we have the victory. Never losing the wisdom of God, the understanding of God. Hiding it into your heart, letting it flow out through your life and your children in generations to come. A sure house. Now, that's what you look for in people. You look for patent people who want to have a desire to accomplish those things. That's what God saw in Samuel. When God saw him, he said, that's the right stuff, man. That's what I'm talking about. That somebody I can do something with. And so he enacts the process. I mean, I would be a fool to not to stand up here and tell you my heart this morning that I want all of you to make it. 
And certainly everybody gets the same chance, but I'd also be a fool uh, to tell you this morning that bottom line is not everybody is going to, but it's by your own choosing. God gives you salvation. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He gives you the Word of God. He gives you a pastor. He gives you a church. He gives you Christian friends. He gives you ministry. He gives you service. But you will either walk into it or you'll walk away from it, and it's your choice. My job is like Eli. I wait and see. You come to me and you say, well, I think God's doing something in my life, Bob. Go back to sleep. Just keep doing what you're doing. Amen. Well, I think, I think the Lord really is speaking to me about this. Well, I don't know if he is or he isn't, so just go back to sleep and we'll find out. But there comes a point in a time in everybody's life when you see it. Amen. You don't maybe see it, but I see it. And when I see God's hand in your life, when I see God beginning to move in your life, and I begin to see what you look at as turmoil or problems with this or with that, and I see it as God wrenching you out and getting some things, that I, then I have a big decision. You know what I tell you to do? Go back to sleep. Just keep doing what you're doing. That's the process. There's no magical formula to it. God will grow you up through the ministry, and the reason why you're not growing up is because you're not in ministry. It's just that simple. That Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, that God has vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And you get to choose which one you want to be. You get to choose. Now look at the end result in Samuel's life. And it will be the same for you. Look at verse 19 and 20. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. Back to chapter 4 now. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And didn't let none of the words fall to the ground. Here it comes. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. You see, God will establish you. You don't have to establish yourself. You don't have to go out and buy a 65-pound King James Bible and pull it around on a truck behind you. God will establish you. It's the greatest single thing that God can do for you other than your salvation. He will establish your marriage. He will establish your family. He will establish your ministry. He'll establish your relationship with God. And then he'll establish it in the eyes of everybody else. And God will establish you. He says in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself the proven of God, a workman. He is not to be ashamed, writing to find the word of truth. A workman. A workman through a process of being approved to God. And then what God does, He establishes you. When you do the work in the Bible, and when you do the work in the ministry, God approves you and establishes you. It doesn't matter what anybody else says about you. It doesn't matter then what anybody thinks about you. Because at the end of the day, as long as God establishes you, you don't need to worry about anybody else. Amen. He's the only one, because He's who you work for. And when God reaches down from heaven, and He sees in you those things, and He picks you, not based on the fact that I'll pick you, I won't pick you. Based on your willingness to let him have you. And he begins to put that process in your life. See? Put you in the right church. Give you the right pastor. Give you the right people. Give you the right Bible. Give you the right ministry. And then let God just move up inside you and tear your guts out inside and out as God changes you and molds you and makes you. Yes, it'll get confusing. Yes, you'll have some struggles. Yes, you'll have some issues. You'll have problems. You'll read them as I'm having a problem because of this. I'll read it because I'll see you're having a problem because of what God is changing about you inside you. You ever notice your kids? Some of you got younger kids. When they hit junior high age, 
This is where their arms get longer than their legs. Their fingers get longer than their toes. Their bodies haven't caught up with their emotions yet. This is where they don't want to wear this particular outfit to school when it looks just fine. Because they look stupid. This is where that they look into the mirror and they start to get pimples. And they cry. You've got to spend $100 on Clearasil or something to scrub them off. Sandpaper and steel wool will do the same thing a lot cheaper. This is where they get to that age when they're out of whack. They're over there and, you know, they're, they're just, they're just I mean, all you got to do is say the, right, say the wrong thing and they'll just break into tears. This is where they think they're ugly. This is where they don't have any friends. This is where their bodies are growing and they're coming to the point where they don't, uh, they don't understand it, what's going on. They're emotionally, many times, their bodies are changing. They're going through puberty. They're going to the point where they're coming into being a young man or a young lady, but their bodies are still down through here. And they're, and they're going in and they're growing and they're out of whack and they're out of proportion and everything is going on right there. And it's all emotional pulls on you. And you know what? And you can take that. And what they need in that life at that point in time is a strong leadership of the parents. To take them and hold them and to make sure that you walk them through that. But you know what? That's exactly what God's people go through. You go through a puberty stage and an adolescence in Christianity just like your children do. You go through a point where you get out of whack and everything acts weird. You look in the mirror and you don't like yourself anymore. You look in your mirror and you say, well, I'm not really doing what God wants me to do. You, you start second-guessing yourself on everything. That's the natural process. Now, somebody will look at it and say, well, they're just nuts. They're just weird. And I'd say, yeah, that person is nothing that weird. But take a normal person, and that's not the case. The normal case is that person is just going through all the emotional trauma of what's inside. They're growing. God's doing what They can't understand it. And at that point, they need somebody strong and firm to simply say, you know what? Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't second-guess yourself. You're doing just fine. Let me help you with this. Let me help you get this. Let me put this in your world. But I'm telling you, just keep doing what you're doing. Because how many times I've said that? Because it's going to be okay. I, I told him, I said, you know what? If I programmed what I wanted in somebody into a computer and the picture came out, you'd be walking out of it. You're exactly where God wants you to be and you're exactly what God wants you to be doing. Just stay faithful to it. And God will take care of the rest. That's what he does. That's what he does. But I told you last week, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. If you're going to run this race, you have to run it lawfully. You have to do it by the book and you have to do it God's way. One thing about Christianity that I really like, works for me, it's the only thing in life that I can't do my way anymore. Amen. I've done things my way all my life. And boy, when I met the Lord and got in that book, my first reality was, my way is done. Because if you're going to accomplish this, you've got to run lawfully. You've got to do it God's way. But that's the way it works. And I see that in so many of you. And that's why God brings you here. This is the training ground. It's all it is. This is just a small part of God's overall collection. And God's got some collection. He really does. But he sees in you, see, he looks down and he sees those characteristics of you staying with it, that you won't quit. You may not have it all figured out. You may have some issues in your life you've got to work through. But at the end of the day, you're not going to quit till you get what God wants you to have. 
That's what God looks for. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this great passage. And Lord, it personally means so